The battle for the future is now. While microchips are king of our current lifestyles, acting as the brains of our electronics, what's the tech of the future? Many are pointing to AI. As artificial intelligence seeps into different aspects of our lives, the questions now are, will AI make the human brain obsolete? What will our future lifestyles look like? And which superpower is leading in that race? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we dive into today's news, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter through the link below. Each week, we round up the highlights and controversies happening around China and the world and share an exclusive behind-the-scenes snapshot with our readers. Keep an eye out. The newsletter will land in your inbox Friday mornings. Microchips have fundamentally changed our lives. Without them, we wouldn't have the cell phones in our pockets, the computers on our desks, or other smart devices. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is starting to play a role in the tech used every day. And that role may soon get even bigger. Put in simple terms, artificial intelligence will help build smart machines, so smart that they can do things only humans were previously capable of. This technology has already started transforming industries. As whoever outcompetes the rest in the AI race will hold the future of tech development in hand. But what are the risks? And who's gaining the upper hand, the U.S. or China? Those were among the key themes of a Senate hearing on Wednesday, where lawmakers took turns questioning AI experts. Here's more. The hearing's participants brought up many risks, bias, discrimination, errors, security challenges, and the lack of visibility over how results are formed. Jason Matheny, president of the global think tank Rand Corporation, argues that AI could be a threat to national security. The technologies are driven by commercial entities that are frequently outside our national security frameworks. The technologies are advancing quickly, typically outpacing policies and organizational reforms within government. Assessments of the technologies require expertise that's concentrated in the private sector and that's rarely been used for national security. And the technologies lack conventional intelligence signatures that distinguish benign from malicious use, that differentiate intentional from accidental misuse, or that permit attribution with confidence. And of course, China was frequently brought up. Tensions between the U.S. and China have been on the rise. And Senator Christian Sinema asked about what advantages and disadvantages the U.S. has against China. America may lose if we focus solely on the size of our data sets, since, frankly, China's authoritarian system lends itself to vacuuming up vast volumes of data with few privacy protections. In contrast, America's competitive advantage may be our values if we can translate these values into developing AI that is transparent, efficient, and fair. Jason Matheny, president of the Rand Corporation, says America is currently the global leader in AI by most measures. And the Chinese regime, of course, it wants to replace America, but Matheny says America has major advantages over China. The first is that we are a much more attractive destination for the world's computer scientists um, and engineers. Many of those scientists and engineers are attracted by our values, so I think those values are a deep part of our asymmetric advantage. Um, a second advantage that we have is our ability to work with allies and partners. Um, the United States and China each were responsible for about 25% of global research and development spending. Um, when you add the U.S. and its allies and add China and its allies, China's percentage doesn't increase. 
because it doesn't have alliances with strong technological powers. Now, Matheny is extremely worried about how AI can speed up the development of technologies like cyber weapons, large-scale disinformation attacks, and advanced bioweapons. Countries uh, like China that have historically invested in uh, biological weapons um, and that have uh, demonstrated an interest in uh, ethnically targeted weapons um, greatly concern me. Um, the use of AI for so-called genome-wide association studies uh, to try to identify how one would uh, ethnically target particular pathogens um, is one area of special concern. And the hearing ended on this question. When is artificial general intelligence coming? Artificial general intelligence is when the AI program can learn anything, just like a human can. Right now, AI programs can only focus on specific tasks, tasks like answering questions, scanning images, or translating languages. Artificial general intelligence, if developed, would be able to do all these things and more. And many prominent figures like Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, and Elon Musk have warned about the dangers of artificial general intelligence. Musk believes it could even lead to the possible end of human civilization. It's also the theme of many classic movies like 2001 Space Odyssey, The Terminator, and The Matrix. But when asked when artificial general intelligence was coming, not one person was able to answer. On Capitol Hill, lawmakers are mulling over a bill against forced organ harvesting. Yet in China, hospitals are trumpeting the scholarship gain from those practices. And now they're setting their eyes on newborns. Here's a closer look. A paper posted to the American Journal of Transplantation is sparking concerns. It builds on two kidney transplants from newborn babies at a Shanghai hospital, both performed at inconceivable speeds. In one case, the parents allegedly consented to the donation one day after the child's birth. In another case, it was after the baby's heart failed on the third day after birth. Kidneys remain viable for transplant for less than 36 hours outside the body. That means the hospital completed surgeries within five days after the children's births, including all the screening tests required. As a comparison, normally before a transplant, it takes one to 14 weeks to test the donor-recipient match. You know, the length of time it takes to complete these steps is, is, depends on a variety of factors, including the availability of the organ, but clearly the complexity of the testing and the urgency of the situation is important. So in general, the process of matching a neonatal kidney for transplant can take several weeks to several months even. Even if rapid transplants like these do occur, they should be a rarity. Yet to date, the Shanghai Hospital has performed 22 such operations on newborns. Officials called the cases voluntary donations, touting them as technological advances. But the unusual figures beg the question, are the claimed donor sources reliable? These anomalies evoke reminders of an infamous crime tied to the Chinese communist regime. The forced organ harvesting of Falun Gong practitioners and other prisoners of conscience. Since the early 2000s, evidence has mounted that organs of detainees have been removed for profit while the unconsenting donors were still alive. In 2018, a London International Tribunal ruled that the situation has been going on for years in China on a significant scale. 
The CCP's live organ harvesting of Falun Gong practitioners has been exposed for years with abundant evidence. But those hospitals and doctors involved are still allowed to give speeches and publish articles. They are exchanging experiences of potential killings. Humanity should not accept this. It's inexcusable. Falun Gong is a spiritual practice based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. The CCP has been operating a persecution campaign against its followers since 1999. To date, millions of people are believed to have been jailed, tortured, or killed for refusing to give up their faith. China claims to be financially recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, but its trade decline may suggest otherwise. NDD's Sam Wang has more. A decrease in China's imports and exports, sounding the alarm for its economy. The sharp dip indicates crumbling global demand for Chinese products. During the first two months of 2023, exports dropped by 6.8 percent compared to a year before. Imports, on the same token, contracted 10.2 percent, much higher than December's decline. For years, China has been the world's largest supplier of manufactured goods. Exports are among the driving factors of China's economic growth. But demands for Chinese commodities started to dampen at the end of 2022 due to global inflation. Frank Xie, business professor of University of South Carolina Aiken, says there's more to it than just global inflation. For one, uh, China is no longer the ideal place to do business. Right? The, the, cost of, uh, the cost of living, the cost of labor, and also the government is becoming uh, ever more hostile towards you know, private enterprises, uh, joint ventures, uh, foreign companies, or toward the West, actually, overall. China's Commerce Minister on Thursday acknowledged that many foreign companies are shortening contracts with Chinese companies as the value of orders shrinks. According to Xie, the lockdown policy also severely disrupted the country's supply chain. You know, the lockdown, the, the blocks, the cities, the plants, for no, uh, no pre-warnings, uh, no warning. It is just to come and just start shut down everything. And that is disrupted the global supply chain. Xie also called the current microchip war between the U.S. and China another crucial factor. Looking at all products, China's semiconductor imports have fallen dramatically due to U.S. export restrictions. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen plans to meet House Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the United States. According to a minister, Tsai will stop off in Los Angeles and New York doing a trip to Central America later this year. The presidential office claimed transit arrangements had been in place for a while, without directly mentioning the United States. Beijing, on the other hand, followed up with a warning, telling the U.S. to not question what they called China's ability to safeguard national sovereignty and territorial integrity. The self-governed island has been front and center in U.S.-China relations. Beijing has a history of denouncing any Western diplomatic ties with Taiwan. On Tuesday, China's new foreign minister said Taiwan is the first red line that must not be crossed by Washington. China also staged military exercises around Taiwan in August, following a visit to Taipei by then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. All of Tsai's predecessors have stopped off in the United States as a way to maintain relations without infuriating China. The U.S. doesn't have an official diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. For years, Washington has called itself neutral on the China-Taiwan geopolitical disputes while maintaining peace within the region. 
Worth noting, Taiwan is considered a crucial U.S. ally in the Indo-Pacific. Residents of Taiwan's Matsu Islands have just become a little more isolated. They've been without the internet for the past month. And the loss of communication is putting stress on local businesses. Taiwan's National Communications Commission blames two Chinese vessels for cutting the cables. Though the island's government stopped short of calling it a deliberate act by Beijing. There's no direct evidence to show the Chinese ships were responsible. Bed and breakfast owner Cao Li Yu says it's taking a toll on business. After the submarine cables were cut off, many customers chose to cancel their reservations for March and April. To connect with the outside world, Matsu's 14,000 residents rely on two submarine internet cables. They lead to Taiwan's main island. Taiwan authorities had found two Chinese ships in the locations of the cut cables. Some experts point to Russia's destruction of the Ukrainian internet infrastructure as a weapon of war. Submarine cables can enable the global economy, so Taiwan needs to invest more resources in repairing and protecting the cables. In the meantime, islanders are forced to hook up to a limited internet connection via microwave radio transmission. It means sending a text could take hours. Calls will drop and videos are unwatchable. For now, the only thing residents can do is wait. The earliest cable-laying ships can arrive is April 20th. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in India. The visit is to bolster ties between two countries in the face of an ever more aggressive Chinese regime. For Australia, India is a top-tier security partner. The Indian Ocean is central to both countries' security and our prosperity. Albanese became the first foreign leader to board India's first home-built aircraft carrier. While on board India's carrier, Albanese said both countries rely on free and open access to sea lanes in the Indo-Pacific for trade and that they are determined to uphold the rules-based international order. On the other hand, Beijing is ramping up its control of sea lanes in the region. It claims most of the South China Sea as Chinese territory and has been militarizing the area by building artificial islands. Almost a third of the world's crude oil travels through the South China Sea. Before traveling to India, Albanese noted he's open to visiting China if Xi Jinping invites him, adding Australia would cooperate with China where it can and disagree where it must. India has been busy welcoming foreign officials. Leaders from Italy and Germany just visited the country, while Japan's prime minister will visit India this month. And U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimondo is there now, joining a group of American business leaders. As for Albanese, he's headed to the U.S. following his India visit. Officials are expected to unveil a submarine deal during his trip. Coming up, foreign companies are phasing out their China operations. But is this a growing trend or just a blip on the radar? We hear from John Pelson, author of Wireless Wars, for his take on investor confidence in Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party's current outlook. China would be willing, in my opinion, Chairman Xi would give up his country's wealth and standard of living if he could trade it for geopolitical control over the rest of the world, if he could export his collectivism that he talks about as being the way for the rest of the world. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Foreign companies are phasing out their business in China. While one billionaire investor says he is unable to pull funds from the country. What's going on? We spoke to John Pelson, author of Wireless Wars, to get his take on what's behind it. John Pelson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here again, Tiffany. So let's begin with the two sessions or China's biggest political meeting that just happened over the weekend. And it seems a lot of the focus there was on economic growth, whether inside the country or also externally. And Xi Jinping did tap four people to lead the country's economy. And these are loyalists. And foreign investors are noting they've never studied abroad and are wondering how that might impact, say, foreign investments in the country. What do you see happening in this front? Well, you know, Regulators in any market, whether it's New York, London, Tokyo, or in China, have to, uh, even though they're supposed to keep an eye on the uh, investors and the companies that are uh, working in their markets, they also have to be sensitive to uh, what the requirements are and needs and expectations are of those players, or else uh, they'll damage their own markets. And the things that, that, Investors above all value is predictability. If you'd say t- things are going to be really tough for the next three or four years, they account for it, they deal with it, they work with it. If they don't know if it's going to be fantastic or maybe not so good, that's actually worse. Even if it's no chance it'll be as bad as that other scenario, what they want is something they can predict and, and account for. Now, in any free market or any free society, if the regulators aren't providing this predictability and, importantly, the transparency about how they're coming to their decisions and what decisions they are going to make or even they have made, if they haven't given that to their investor community, uh, their own uh, roles in government are in jeopardy. People will not tolerate having regulators that screw up the markets for them. Now, right now in China, you've got uh, government rulers. I don't want to call them leaders, but you've got rulers there who aren't used to the idea of if they screw something up, they could be out on the street and they could be shown the door by their own citizens and their own companies and investors. So the idea of, of uh, worrying about whether they're doing damage and having a consequence is kind of a foreign one. And so on that note, with these decisions we're seeing being made, how is that going to impact foreign investment or foreign markets? Well, some guys are in for the long haul and they're just you know, so convinced that this is where the pot of gold lies, that they're they're hanging in there. And some of the, the uh, big investors and uh, hedge funds and others uh, just are so attracted to the potential in China, which has always been the, uh, the lure, that they're hanging in there. But others now, certainly on the industrial side, are saying, we don't know about putting in a $100 million factory. Uh, it's a big investment. There's no liquidity. You can't pick it up and move it. Uh, the idea is you can pick up your capital and take it out of the country if you're looking for financial investments. But the industrial companies are definitely spooked, and you're seeing the beginning, that's all it is, the beginning of a flight from China. And, John, to your point, it does seem, you know, throughout years, China's been known as the world's factory, but we are seeing, to your point, a lot of companies moving out, like even Apple is moving some of its supply chains to India or even Vietnam, these other countries. Where do you see that going? Is it growing or, as you mentioned, is it a blip? Well, I I think it's going to continue growing. Uh, India is finally waking up to this opportunity. You've got a country that's bigger in population than China, has an educated 
English-speaking population, which maybe isn't important for everyone in the world, but it is certainly for American investors. Of course, you have Vietnam, uh, which is eager to take this on. You have the Philippines. And for the most part, these are countries that do not have tight, close relationships with China. And John, you did mention the investors as well, and it seems there's also been some movement in that area. We do have the billionaire investor Mark Mobius saying he's been unable to take some of his funds out of China. China, of course, denies that. And even some Chinese nationals who are living abroad are saying they're having more difficulty accessing their funds. What do you see happening in that sector? Why is that happening? In his case, and this is a big time investor, multi-billions we're talking about, they're not telling him no. They're just not giving him his money. They're not telling him why. They're not telling him when. It's just not happening. And that's the lack of transparency that really ought to spook any investor. I mean, you can't pull a billion dollars of assets into the country all of a sudden. But if it's financial and it happens to be there, you can close that spigot and suddenly it's trapped. And that should be really scary to any private equity or hedge fund or, or even venture capital company that's moving hundreds of millions or smaller people, tens of millions in and out of the country that apparently the Chinese regulators and authorities aren't concerned about the ripples going through the market when they turn something like this off. I mean, they should be very attuned to that. Any market would be, and they are not. On that note, it does seem, you know, you have, say, the more China hawks or, you know, hard on China. You have like Casey Fleming noting that in a time of war, there's no way of accessing those funds. There's no way China would be like, yeah, here are your retirement, your pension funds, all of your investments. So what should, you know, the worried people, citizens be doing in that case? This is, this is the strange thing about all this, Tiffany. Typically, globalization, world trade, even though people decry it, is a terrific thing. If your interdependencies grow with other countries, you're less likely to go to war. You're not going to bomb a factory that makes your own country's insulin. You're not going to blow up a steel mill if that's where you're making your ships. Uh, and, and so this creates uh, peace between countries, but it's a means to an end. And so China would be willing, in my opinion, Chairman Xi would give up his country's wealth and standard of living if he could trade it for geopolitical control over the rest of the world, if he could export his collectivism that he talks about as being the way for the rest of the world. And to your point, I've heard some examples, right, where people in the country will buy, say, a luxury car and then ship it over to the U.S. and sell it for cash and get money that way. But how do you see these types of things impacting not just China, but also other countries like the U.S.? Oh, well, th there's easier ways to get the money out. Uh, now, I can tell you what I've heard because I don't have any money in China that I'm trying to get out. So this is a, a speculation based on uh, people that I've been talking to that are engaged in, in either trying to stop this or in some cases are looking for ways to uh, get money out. But uh, one of the more uh, intriguing methods I heard about is the, uh, the, the casino technique where you go into Macau, you lose a million dollars gambling, you show up in Vancouver or some Western casino, and you make a million dollars in gambling. And with the right connections between those casinos, you've laundered your money out of the country. And so then how should we be responding to China or how should we be countering this? I think we have to be, uh, we, we don't want to provoke anything that's a hotter conflict than there is now. And certainly no one wants bullets being fired. Uh, China doesn't want that. Now they'd like to just quietly take Taiwan, seize the, the South Sea, uh, and 
and extend their philosophy around the rest of the world. They don't want to be dropping bombs and shooting and, and having their own ships sunk and, and so on. But they do want to win. People ask me, what would it be like if that happened? Would that be so bad if China got the upper hand the way the U.S. does in so much of the world today? And I say, just look at how it is in China today. You know, if you don't want to be squelched the way they are, if you don't want to be disappeared in the middle of the night for speaking up against the leader, uh, then, then we have to remain strong and make sure China doesn't get that upper hand. John Pelson, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks, Tiffany. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.